0: The Importance of Being Feminist, a podcast by YWCA Scotland, The Young Women's Movement. Happy International Women's Day everyone and welcome to the first episode of The Importance of Being Feminist, a podcast by YCCA Scotland. My name is Iris and I am one of the blog editors here at the Young Women's Movement. Today I'm going to start off this podcast with a really important issue sex workers' rights. Just to give you a heads up, we're gonna discuss sex work and we'll briefly mention sexual violence and violence against women. So if this could upset you in any way, feel free to skip this episode and depending on when you're listening to it, either wait or listen directly to the next one. If you're new to the topic, The Nordic Model is a legal approach to sex work which criminalises only the clients and not the sex workers. It was originally instituted in Sweden in 1999 but is becoming increasingly popular not only across Europe but worldwide. In fact, Ireland and Canada have adopted it and the conversation around the Nordic Model is heated to say the least. So we at YWC Scotland thought to delve into the issue and make things a little clearer for anyone who is confused or who doesn't really know anything about it maybe. So since we're talking about sex workers rights I'm here with Freya and Elizabeth who are bringing their own experience to the table. Hi both and thank you so much for being here. Shall we start from an introduction of who you are and what's your relationship to sex work, maybe?
1: Thanks so much for having me. Um, My name is Freya. I'm a Swedish sex worker and activist uh, living in Scotland currently. So I've uh, worked as a full-service sex worker uh, for several years under the Nordic model loss in Sweden, and have since moved to Scotland.
2: Uh, And uh, hi, thanks for having me. I'm Elizabeth, I'm based in Glasgow, and I was a former stripper in Edinburgh for approximately 10 years. And um, while I've never been a full service sex worker, um, a lot of my friends have done it. So I've sort of like been beside them and watched it go up and down and how it goes, basically.
0: (laughs) I briefly mentioned it at the beginning, but it's probably best if we dig a little bit deeper into the basics of the issue. So Freya, you've worked under the Nordic Model in Sweden. Could you tell us what it is and what's its history?
1: Uh, The Nordic Model is an approach to prostitution law. It is the first approach to prostitution law that uses feminist rhetoric to argue for the criminalization of uh, the purchase of sex. And it was first introduced in Sweden in 1999 with the Sex Purchase Act, or in Swedish, the Sex Shop Slogan. And that was the first country to to use this sort of feminist argumentation to uh, try to abolish sex work.
0: Thank you, Freya. And Elizabeth, what is the history of the Nordic model here in Scotland? We know that we recently had the Equally Safe Consultation, but was that the first time that such a provision has been proposed here, or were there any others?
2: So yeah, I had I had a browse around and the first time I can find this on the internet, anyway, evidence I can find this on the internet was in 2010 by Labour politicians. I couldn't find out the exact name of the person that put this across. But then in 2011, Trish Godman from Labour, again, uh, tried to push it through. And then again in 2013 by Rona Grant, again, Labour. And then it seems like there was a bit of a quiet period there. But then in 2017, the SNP backed a motion for client criminalisation laws, so the Nordic model. So they're saying, oh, we approve of this. And then obviously last year in 2020, we saw the public consultation on it in Scotland,
0: thanks to MSP Ash denim, And that's so far what I could find. That's great. Thank you so much for summing it up. So what about feedback? I mean, in your experience, what was the reaction to the consultation?
2: Overall, I don't know if I'm maybe in a bubble, but I feel like people are not impressed with this, which is obviously a great reaction to have. I found the consultation papers from 2013 and I just find it really fascinating because what I noticed is the amount of people that were really supporting the 2013 consultation, because we've not had the results from the 2021 out yet, but the 2013 one was um, a lot of religious organizations, <laughs> very strangely, like worldwide religious organizations. One of them was um, Exodus Cry from Houston, if I remember correctly, which I find really, really questionable because, you know, why are they sticking their noses into predominantly women's bodies when it comes to this? And you know wh- what else they're against are stuff like abortion, etc. And what else I find really interesting was that most people, well, basically everybody that voted in favor of the Nordic model were not sex workers. And there was a list of people that were not for it at all. And it was all sex workers organizations. So I think that speaks a lot to how it was
0: received generally. So I have a question for the both of you. Elizabeth mentioned that sex workers were and are really against the Nordic model when given the chance of speaking up. Do you think they were consulted at all on the issue and kind of related to it? Do politicians and policymakers care to listen to sex workers' voices?
1: I definitely don't think that sex workers were primarily consulted. And the thing is, historically, that is never the case. And what Elizabeth said about there being a lot of religious organizations that responded to the consultation in in favor of the Nordic model, there's actually a lot of historical backing for that, the original uh, Sex Purchase Act was kind of the culmination of the the old moralist religious arguments like in sweden originally you know in the 18th century it was a religious it was a religious state, and it it was a religious christian biblical argumentation that was used to like penalize sex workers and that has taken many forms over the years since then but it is still that same rhetoric that has only like evolved over the years it became sort of like a more health and moral issue in the 19th century because of uh, a syphilis outbreak that was really plaguing society and sex workers were blamed for this they were used as scapegoats for this and there were a lot of like invasive um medical um like health checks forced upon them, they would have to get checked uh, several times a week and like their freedom of movement within the cities in Sweden were limited. Uh, This was like supposedly though to prevent like this the syphilis outbreak but it never actually made a difference eventually that law was repealed and it was replaced by like a vagrancy law uh where it kept this like moral clause like and pushed that that oh women shouldn't be doing this like morally and then eventually like in the 60s it was replaced with this like marxist argumentation that like oh no actually It's not that they're morally failing, it's that they're victims under capitalism. And that became that they were victims under patriarchy in the 80s uh, with this like porn and prostitution as violence against women and so their their this victim narrative became further and further pushed and then when sweden joined the eu in 1995 there was a lot of fear surrounding that there was going to be an immigration boom and that there's going to we're going to come a lot of immigrant sex workers to sweden and that's when they wrote the the sex purchase act in 1999 as a response to this so it's all goes back to this religious, moral argumentation where this all comes from originally. So the fact that a lot of religious groups still support the Nordic model is because it's always been in line with their thinking. It came out of that line of thinking originally.
0: Yeah, and that's patronising as well. The attitude is basically, we need to rescue these women, thus taking away their agency. So Freya, you referred to a sort of continuum in the narrative around sex work, a narrative that first sees sex workers as morally corrupt and then as victims. What do you think the current debate is like? And do you see any differences between Sweden and Scotland?
1: Well, uh, I definitely see a difference in what uh the sex worker communities look like um i don't know about the the broader media debates surrounding sex work i haven't had the chance to see much of it yet except for this consultation of course and obviously we already have the sex purchase act in sweden so we wouldn't need this kind of consultation but what i saw when i came to scotland was this like very aggressive backlash towards the consultation like the community really organized itself and and responded like strongly and swiftly and with intent and That's not something that is really possible in Sweden in the same way. The community is much more hidden and divided and people are much, much more scared scared to express these kinds of views. So definitely there is a difference in that. I think Scotland, these ideas haven't taken root in the same way. These ideas exist here and they're trying to be pushed, but they're not like, they don't have that same foothold. So there is much more resistance. And I think in a way that the debate is much healthier because there's actually several sides to it. Whereas in Sweden, the debate is incredibly homogeneous it's very very much one note everyone says the exact same thing and if you say anything other than that you're you're silenced very very quickly so their sex work organizations are more about like community and and keeping each other safe because uh speaking out is just not really an option in the same way that it is here so I'm really glad to see that here that there is more a a bigger willingness to fight back against this kind of rhetoric
0: and Do you believe that sex workers be in this kind of survival mode and really afraid of speaking up is due to the Nordic model being in place?
1: Absolutely. And the fact that it's been in place for so, so, so long. And because before there was the Nordic model, there were the vagrancy laws. Before that, there were the the health laws. And before that, there were the religious laws. Like it's always been this way in Sweden. It's always been this way. So generations and generations and generations of sex workers have worked under these conditions or versions of these conditions so it's really hard in sweden to imagine anything better or anything different i mean of course we can now with the with the internet and with the 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 globalization of everything like we we can see that it is different in other countries and and stuff but it's very hard to imagine it ever becoming that way in sweden
0: So back to Elizabeth, I'd like to look at Scotland, where, as Freya suggests, there seems to be a more open debate. Could you expand on it and, I mean, especially mention the different sides, who is supporting the Nordic model and who on the contrary is against it?
2: Um, I think again, it's quite similar. Again, sex workers are absolutely against the Nordic model, especially sex workers that are currently working because it would put their lives in danger and make their work work much harder without actually giving them what they need, which is the money, you know, or sort of finding a way to sort of replace that money that will that will be lost if the Nordic model comes into play. The people that are really interested in it, I think, I feel like from what I've read, that I think there's a massive class issue going on here. Obviously there's definitely the religious undertones, but ultimately, they can try and say that it's about gender inequality all they want, but ultimately it is a class issue. It is absolutely a class issue because people with generational wealth don't tend to sort of go down this route. They, they're the ones that can sit back and talk about things like, oh, but we shouldn't allow prostitution because it contributes to gender inequality. Um, they have the privilege of being able to sit back and think about these things and theorise about the lives of working class women who are quite frankly just trying to survive or live comfortably under capitalism. So I think that's what it is. I think ultimately as a class divide is always rich, well-off privileged middle-class women that want to go down this argument about feminism and I think people that are just trying to live their lives the best they can are the ones that are obviously just like let us go on with our work.
0: Well I think that even the fact that in Ireland for instance the client is fined speaks volumes to the classist nature of this approach. In a way if you're wealthy enough you could still buy sex because you could take that risk. As you said, gender equality is not to be looked from a theoretical or philosophical framework only. But we need to consider the intersections of different issues. And first and foremost, the concrete issues that are affecting women. But in this discussions, we cannot look at women only because we know that we can equate sex workers with women. All genders can be sex workers. So in regards to the sex workers community, I'd actually like to ask you if you've ever met a sex worker that supports the Nordic model. I mean, I've personally not ever met anyone.
2: Uh, I've seen sex workers on Twitter say that they're for the Nordic model, but they tend to be women that are out of the industry. So I feel a bit like they shouldn't really be saying something that goes against women that are currently in the industry because they're not the ones that have to go through it. But personally, I've never met a worker that's up for the Nordic model.
1: I have. Uh, yeah, in Sweden, there, are, there is a small um, organization of uh, so Swedish nationals uh, of white women, uh, cis women who were sex workers when they were under age and who did it as a form of self-harm because they were mentally ill, and who are very, very loudly outspoken in Sweden. And this is sort of the new narrative that is being pushed now, even though Swedish nationals make a very, very, very small minority of the sex workers in Sweden, the vast majority, I think, like, 70 or 80% are migrant women uh, or, or uh, immigrated sex workers. Um, so it's a very small percentage uh, that that it, that is made up of uh, uh, Swedish nationals. Um, but they, because they are pro the Nordic model, they get all of the media attention and all of the uh, space to talk about their experiences. And um, of course, the fact that they were exploited when they were young and vulnerable is awful and should not happen. This is not what the majority of sex work looks like. The majority of sex workers work because they need the money and don't relate to the experiences that these particular women have. Um, but because they paint a, a picture that is very appealing to the Swedish narrative, they get a lot of uh, media attention and a lot of screen time in like Swedish television and stuff like that. And then as far as Scotland goes, I have seen some sort of pro-Nordic model campaign that uh, claimed to be uh, some project that claimed to be interview. I don't remember the name of it right now, but it claimed to be interviewing Uh, a couple of actual like uh, Scottish sex workers and they were pro the Nordic model but they every single story was very very similar and they were women who like had maybe had a drug problem when they were younger and then had done sex work for a time to finance that and then had gotten clean and were ashamed of what they'd done and thought that sex work was a terrible thing that should never happen to anyone and again, very, very tragic that those things had to happen to those women. And I don't, you know, I uh, want to diminish their pain in any way. But again, this is not the majority of the reasons that people sell sex. The majority of the reason that people do that is to be able to finance their lives. It's to be able to pay their bills, pay their rent, buy food. So framing it as a workers' rights issue is very, very important because it's what would benefit a majority of people involved in it? And that's what pro Nordic model, even sex workers who are pro Nordic model, don't do.
0: I mean, I'm an outsider in that. I've never engaged in sex work, but being interested in the media, even I noticed that there is this polarized narrative which depicts sex workers as either victims to be rescued or empowered feminists. I feel like this polarization has become even stronger during lockdown with like in-person sex work being limited and a lot of sex workers moving online. And just like overall in the media, we've seen a lot of stories of unemployed people becoming online sex workers through OnlyFans and Admire Me and this has been promoted as a successful lifestyle which allows you to buy yourself a Gucci bag in the space of a week basically. So I think this narrative is quite dangerous because it takes the work from sex work
2: yeah it seems like there's always a massive focus even on either on everybody being painted as victims of those particular scenarios or like super empowered choice feminists and that's really not the case you know like I spent many years stripping and most of the time it was just very mundane it was just to get through the day to get the things that I needed
1: Yeah it's the it's the tragic versus happy hooker dichotomy it's it's the main way that we get like dehumanized actually like you it's it's a tool for dehumanizing sex workers because if everyone can either be placed in one of these two categories and if you can't if you as a sex worker are more complex in any way then I will just pick as an observer as a journalist as a politician as a a filmmaker as whatever I will just pick which one I think you fit the best in and I will censor all of the parts of you that don't fit that and that's really it's really actually much more insidious than 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 it seems when you just say oh these are the two stories that get told it's like no actually a lot of stories get told but they only get told like only those two slivers of of all of our stories get told Um, because most people are more complicated than either of those narratives and it's the media that constantly forces us to fit into these tiny 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 holes I think most people, uh, see, have struggle seeing us as the nuanced people that we are because they are constantly fed these two, like the, 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 the tragedy and the sensationalist, uh, the happy hooker or, you know, the trauma porn. Like it's, it's always one of these two. And it's not, I don't think it's that people wouldn't or won't or can't or don't want to empathize with us. It's that they're never given the opportunity to. They're never given nuanced portraits of us. So how are they supposed to?
0: So back to the Nordic model, could you explain both the risks and benefits that would come with it? Well, um,
2: it's, it's all very commonsensical. Obviously, if you have a law in that says if you go to purchases, you're criminalized, then what kind of people are you going to be left with that's willing to take this risk? It's certainly not going to be the people that are respectful, that will respect you, respect your time, respect your boundaries. It's most likely going to be people that already have criminal record. They don't really care about doing another one. They're going to be rude to you because they know that this interaction is not, you know, this interaction is, is not legitimized in a way. And then... So then, And then you've got less customers as well. So less customers means that you have less money, so you have to work for longer and take maybe riskier clients that you wouldn't normally take. If you're working on the street as well, you can't linger and like figure them out. So You have to probably just get in the car as quickly as possible or meet somewhere where there's not any cameras. Ultimately, it just stops the sex worker from being able to work on their own terms and have their own safety strategies, which is really, really important in this line of work.
1: Yeah, the perceived benefits that the proponents of the Nordic model claim is that it shifts the blame away from the sex worker towards the sex buyer. But what actually has happened in every country where they have implemented the model is that the stigma against sex workers has gone up. And in Sweden, when they first evaluated the law, they said that we can tell that the situation for sex workers has gotten worse, but that that ultimately is a good thing because the goal of the law is to end prostitution. So anyone who says that is just masking. Um, What the goal of the law really is, it's always going to end up falling back on the sex worker, because when you criminalize the buyer, the sex worker becomes responsible for keeping the buyer safe. When I'm meeting a client in Sweden, I can't demand to know his phone number, his name the exact address. I often get, you know, an, an, an address that is not exactly where we're going to meet. And then once I get there, he's like, okay, now walk two buildings over and then one to the right. And like, that's the actual house. And uh, so that, of course, it's, it's a lot riskier. Whereas in Scotland, when I worked here, I always get texts from phone numbers, that seems to be the standard here. Whereas in Sweden, I have to operate on these anonymous chat messaging apps like Geek and stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of very clear differences there in, in how safe you can keep yourself.
0: And do you feel safer here compared to Sweden?
1: Absolutely, 100%. Every single client that I've met has been polite polite. Every single message that I've gotten has been polite. It starts like, "Hi, how are you? I would like to maybe book this and that. Uh, are you available these and these dates? Uh, I am this kind of person. Blah blah blah." Whereas, like in Sweden, I definitely get messages like that, and those are primarily the clients that I take. But I, those messages will be, you know, in, in uh, o- occasional. Whereas the majority of the messages will be like, "You up?" suck my dick, like, come here now, like, these, like, really rude, like, I don't even respond to those things, because they're not, they're not legit customers, most of them, they're just, or any guys online but all of that stuff is completely non-existent here like in in my experience so far I don't have to deal with any of that stuff so it's definitely nicer to work here it's safer it's it's more transparent the guys I think often give me their real names um which again would not really happen in
0: Sweden well, I'm glad to hear that it's better for you here, safety-wise. So I have a question for you both again. Are there any inaccurate facts that you'd like to clarify or misconceptions on this issue that maybe you want to debunk?
2: I think just a general Um, misconception that the Nordic model is in any way feminist, because it's only feminist if you obviously don't have to do anything like that for a living. It's only feminist if you can just sit back and theorise about it. Um, And also just generally the idea that sex workers are somehow subhuman, because that's just so far from the truth. It's, you know, it's kind of beyond me.
1: The idea that sex workers are victims is definitely the thing that bugs me the most. The Not that sex workers can't be victims and that sex workers aren't victimized. Of course there are situations in which they are and that's terrible but they're not inherently victims. There's nothing inherently victimizing about being a sex worker. I don't walk around feeling like a victim most of the time and most of the sex workers that I meet do not either. Like they maybe have been victims of some things at some points in time, but that's not who they are intrinsically, inherently. That's not who they walk around being. I really hate this idea that victimhood is something that like you it's such a label that you can't ever escape. Like once once you've been a victim, you you never cease to be. And that's just not how life works. Like I if you're a victim of any other type of crime, like if someone robs you, you're not a victim like of robbery for the rest of your life. Like that's a thing that happened that sucked at a point in time and that you move on from you the most important part is still that you're a person and all of the other things that you do and spend your time on and that gets so lost especially from the perspective of the like moralizing perspective of the nordic model proponents and i think that's uh yeah that's definitely what annoys me the most about this discourse
0: yeah i find that this aspect is completely missing from mainstream discourse around sex work i mean boundaries consent and safety are crucial within the sex workers community and perhaps even more so and even more openly talked about that in like everyday life i don't know about you but i definitely didn't receive that much of an education around consent growing up
2: yeah same there wasn't really much at all I suppose I had to yeah I sort of learned I learned more about consent from sex work than I actually have in my relationships to be honest with you now that I'm thinking about it
1: yeah and I think I really think that sex workers should be seen as 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 experts on that like who who better to know how to stand up for your autonomy who better to know like how to still know your worth despite having Soul sex, like it's really mind boggling that it's not more considered like something that makes you an expert on autonomy and consent because you you have had to really confront those things in a way that a lot of people can can go a long time without ever doing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like, as we were talking about earlier today, Freya, as well, like how sex workers have set their own boundaries, they decide what they're comfortable doing, and what they're not comfortable doing. So we're both talking about how we're both much more in person workers, like we always prefer the moment to be fleeting and in real life. But a lot of people as well, like prefer just doing online work, they don't want to be anywhere near, like physically near the uh, the customer. And, you know, it just everybody does what suits them best.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I feel like I've been able to teach a lot of people like not not like in a in a leadership sense but just like in my interpersonal relationships like i've been able to pass on a lot of like healthy views on boundaries and consent and on sex and on our bodies that i feel really grounded and firm in. Like I know these things about myself and I don't need this kind of like reassurance or like this 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 sense of like not knowing what you want and these kinds of things that I feel like can often become like complicated in relationships, not knowing what to want what you want or not knowing how to express what you want or not knowing how to ask your partner what they want. And these are these are skills that I have obviously. Obviously, because of my job, I have to know what I want and I have to know how to articulate that. And I have to know how to ask someone else what they want, regardless of if they are very able to communicate that uh, of their own accord or not. And that's definitely benefited not just me, but also like my partners in my
2: life.
0: So moving on to a more solutions focused approach, what would be the best policy for sex workers to work safely?
2: decriminalization obviously <laughs> full decrim like the same model that they have in New Zealand so that sex work can um, can be viewed completely under labour laws and um, that way it will give the sex worker a lot more control over how they work it would also take power away from systems um, and management that can exploit you which happened a lot in the strip clubs even though that's you know I mean it's regulated but no one cares so they just get away with doing so much horrible things to you but obviously sex workers fully decriminalized and under labor laws and everybody um, and sex workers know that they have a right to safety and uh, a right to go to law enforcement if they need to then it would just make life easier so much easier for everyone
0: Could you also clarify that decriminalisation is not anarchy? I was researching in preparation for this podcast and I found quite a strange argument, to be honest. So it basically suggested that once sex work is decriminalised, the law would not affect sex workers at all. So basically, sex trafficking will not be tackled anymore and, and I'm basically quoting, if a pimp knocks on your door at every hour of the day, you can't do anything.
1: This is This is a fear-mongering argument. This is a fear-mongering argument that they very, very often use to, like, try to shit on the idea of decriminalization, but it doesn't hold any water. The thing is, even if you decriminalize all sex work, there will still be laws against rape, against kidnapping, against trafficking. These things do not become legal just because we decriminalize sex work. And they don't become, like, out of reach for the law. It's We have, like, the law consists of many, 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 many different laws that overlap in certain areas. And if you decriminalize sex work, all of the surrounding laws will still exist.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a bit wild. You're not decriminalizing rape and trafficking, you're decriminalizing sex work. I don't understand how anyone would even...
1: Also, something that might be uh, good to mention here is that there's a difference between decriminalization and legalization, um, and that uh, the reason that uh, I at least prefer decrim over legalization is that legalizing creates a sort of two-layered system. So when something is legal, it is legal within a certain framework, right? So it's legal to buy cigarettes, but only if you're over 18, It's legal. It's it's legal to buy alcohol, but only at certain times in certain places when you're of a certain age, right? And so, if sex work is legalized, then it's legal only at certain times in certain places by certain people. Which means that the sex workers, the most precarious sex workers, often the uh, uh, the transgender sex workers, the 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 trans women, especially, and the and the women of color, um, the migrant sex workers, they. Uh, will often maybe not have the means or the opportunities, the possibilities to jump through the legal hoops to be considered legal, and then they still are criminalized. And uh, it becomes this like two tier system with this like backside, this underbelly of of still criminalized sex workers. And that's why legalization might be better than the Nordic model, but ultimately it's not enough.
2: Yeah. And also, often as well, there's extortion that fees for licences, which, again, if you're a very precarious and the most vulnerable sort of worker, you're not going to be able to afford that first start-off fee. Um, same reason as to why it's really, really messed up that soliciting is illegal here, because, again, if you're outside soliciting, it has very low entry like le- um, things that you need to start. So, again, you tend to that job if you have very little resources to start off in the first place. Um, so, again, it's just punishing people that have that are the lowest, the bottom of the hierarchy when it comes to sex work basically
0: so what do you think is the most likely scenario now in scotland since you're both involved in local activism
2: i'm not really sure to be honest we're still waiting to see what will come back out of the consultation response we're hoping that and because uh, because i think quite a lot of people were averse to the idea of bringing the nordic model to scotland that this will push it back again but i mean they've tried quite a few times now surely they can't keep trying they've got to just give it up and give us decrim at some point right surely i hope
1: um i i'm definitely hope that the Work we did with the consultation was enough, and that uh, it will be warded off. But given that they have been trying since two thousand and ten, and that we had such a such a strong response, I don't think that this consultation will be pushed into law. And I hope that ports them from making any other attempts for at least a couple of years. And in that time, I hope we have the time to further organize our community and uh, try to push for decrim, and especially I think the way forward is to get feminist and queer spaces to recognize sex workers as allies and um, sex work issue as like a, a, a natural feminist issue like to to have a, a decrim approach to sex work as uh a, a, if that could become a mainstream feminist talking point and it could be like widely spread that people who who work with like feminism and queer activism and that kind of stuff that they also see this as a as a no-brainer i think that's the goal um but we'll see how long that
0: fingers crossed i do hope you're right and so during the consultation did you have a chance of speaking directly to P- politicians or policymakers? no and if i'm totally honest with you they know they know like they they
2: know people scream at them all the time sex workers are constantly telling them they're not listening because they don't want to listen it's, it's about like screaming yeah screaming at a blank wall
1: yeah, that's the thing. As long as it's just sex workers saying these things, they can ignore us. And that's, that's exactly why I said the thing that I said about feminism and, and queer activists. Like when it becomes uh, mainstream is when uh, MSPs actually start feeling a certain pressure. They don't care what people on the fringes of society thinks because it is not um, uh, going to make your political career to stand up for the little guy. It is going to make your political career to do what most people want you to do. So we need to get most people to want them to do this. And then they'll do it. I've been thoroughly impressed by a wide variety of uh, things here in Scotland politically. Um, for example, uh, medicine is free. Wow. Medicine is free here. I It's not in Sweden. It's it, There's a maximum cost per year, but... It's not free, and yeah, I get to vote in the Scottish Parliament election as a EU national just because I'm a resident in Sweden. You can't vote unless you 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 become a citizen. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of things here that I've been like, wow, Scotland really, really seems like a country that wants the best for its citizens. So I guess if I were speaking to a politician, I'd say. Look at your track record, don't back out now, like you got this so much better, you're doing so much better than so many European countries, or I guess not European anymore, but like so much better than so many countries, don't like stop now, you know, keep pushing, like be the role model you're so close to being.
0: Yeah, I feel the same, to be honest. Italy is probably more similar to Sweden in this sense. We partially pay our healthcare and you definitely need to be a citizen to vote. Scotland has incredible potential when it comes to human rights, so let's hope they keep it up when it comes to sex workers' rights. Well, ladies, that was my last question, actually. So, well, first of all, thank you. I think that conversation was really useful. And myself, I've learned quite a few things during our chat. And I definitely found I like more insights about the issue. So thank you so much again for your expertise and time. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Iris.
0: This was the first episode of The Importance of Being Feminist. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, why not spread the word? You can like, comment and share our work as much as you want and if you want to send us a wee voice note, have a look at the podcast on Anchor and leave us a message. If you want to support YWC Scotland, first of all thank you and I'll leave you a link with all the info you need in the podcast description as well as on our social media channels. That's all from me today and thank you so much for listening.